Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. To celebrate the launch of our new podcast, the first 50 subscribers who review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or followers on Spotify will receive a £10 voucher to spend on delicious speciality coffee from Cafe Direct's London Fields Roastery. Just send photos of your subscription and review to podcast at cafedirect.co.uk by midnight on the 21st of November 2021. Our guest today is Pauline Tiffin, an incredible woman who has worked actively to make trade fair for more than 30 years as a company director, an innovator, an advisor, a consultant and a writer. As head of Twin Trading, Pauline led the work to set up groundbreaking companies like Cafe Direct and Divine Chocolate and created linkages for farmers and artisans from all over the world. We'll talk about how Pauline sees recent social movements like Black Lives Matter and how they are an evolution of the fair trade movement and also what consumers need to look out for when trying to buy ethically. We'll delve into the extraordinary stories of how and why Cafe Direct was set up and the tough decisions that needed to be made for a pioneering business. Pauline is also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Fair Trade, which brings together critical thinking on how to make trade fairer for people and planet, which you can view online for free. Listen on to hear Pauline's views on why it's essential to disrupt the conventions of the market. It feels like there's been a real sense of movement latterly. You know, fair trade has sort of matured and you know people think about the label and all that kind of stuff it's become very much one word but we've had things like black lives matter and to, in a different way extinction rebellion how do you see movements like that and how do they fit with the need for change positively i guess is what i'm trying to get to i have given this a lot of thought and i've actually done lots of things with people who are active in decolonization thinking and action. This is where we come to something that's quite complicated. When the fair trade or alternative trade movement was emerging, it was a very plural set of people. You had a lot of people who just wanted to help poor people. Yeah. Not not a bad thing, by the way. And then you had people who who wanted to help revolutionary governments. <laughs> In, you know, in different parts of the world. And I became very aware of the, the differences of purpose behind this very broad church, very plural movement, very early on, because I would say things and people would look at me appalled, <laughs> right? So what, what's very interesting to me now, and, and I was so proud to publish a piece in the Journal of Fair Trade as one of the early issues which is by a very young person activist who said she was brought up on fair trade by her mum kind of thing. But actually, at its best, it was a part of what we now call the decolonization movement. In other words, we had colonised the world. Trade was basically and inherently unfair. And fair trade at its best was helping to put that right, yeah. redress that injustice and what 
what I realized is that not everybody saw it that way. But in fact, twin trading always did, right? So I came from, if you like, the radical end of the movement, as opposed to the humanitarian end of the movement. That broad church is good. And what things like Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter and other decolonization initiatives and discourses, like museums, for example, and, and where all the money went from the plantation and the slave trade and so on. I think what that's doing is it's bringing people who were content and felt good about engaging with fair trade as a simple and meaningful humanitarian act. Actually, the positioning of what's needed in the world is coming closer and is being brought closer by Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, to, a, I think, a more cutting-edge version of what's needed if trade is to be fair. Maybe this is, you know, the midlife, you know, sop to my conscience, but actually I see people moving towards me and I haven't had to move towards them over the years. <laughs> Hopefully it's going to help us all to be more conscious in the way we lead our lives and the way we change. I think that's true. And I think one of the pleasures of being the editor of this journal of Fair Trade has been encouraging people to write and supporting people to write things that are so meaningful and so important about what we've been through. There's a piece coming out soon, which is Can Fashion Ever Be Fair? And it's a reflection on all the efforts of the 80s and 90s through the lens of what does this really mean? Actually, it means we all accept that black and brown women can be exploited in factories to make our clothes. Mm. But it's somebody who was part of all those efforts with big companies and this is and alliances, you know, and it's like a, the most beautiful reflection of what actually, why couldn't that have worked? Because we didn't see the realities, the unfairness, the injustice of that particular sector in terms that now increasingly make great deal of sense to us. Mm, yeah. It's important to, I think, recalibrate. What does fair trade mean to you? Because I think, you know, some people see the label, some people think of different brands, but it was really, what's, what's the meaning behind fair trade to you? The first time that I recall the phrase fair trade being used was in 1989. We had a conference in very renowned kind of non-profity sort of place in central London, um, which was uncharitably called the home of lost causes by critics of radicals. Hmm. And we've called it as twin trading. The title of the conference was Who Cares About Fair Trade? And we brought in all the then alternative traders, the worker co-op movement, labor movement, solidarity campaign movement, and some of the companies like the body shop that were trying to do something different. And we had a really good discussion and we had a lot of support from the Commonwealth. So we had all sorts of ideas and products and experiences that were discussed from fisher folk, from Mauritius, you know, through to the what we now might think of as the usual suspects, coffee farmers and, and so on. 
And that was the first time I recall the word being used. And they were always problematic. And they remain a problematic set of words, to be honest. Because like beauty, fairness is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. And the degree of unfairness in your life is so much determined by the systems within which we exist, the consequences and legacies of the past, macroeconomic policy, and, you know, it, it's a really complicated thing. Whereas I think over the years, I've come to see it in a much more simplistic manner, mm -hmm. which is the best types of fair traders are solution finders. Ah. The kinds of companies that operate with passion, with attention to detail, with a strong desire to recognize the power of being a buyer or the power of being a seller in a retail space is built into the DNA of the company and influences how they relate to others the willingness to share and not abide by the competitive dynamics of a conventional marketplace. So what I've seen over the years is so many companies that have that kind of solution-finding passion baked into them, usually through individuals, sometimes through faith, sometimes through politics <laughs> and political motives. And those are the most interesting companies to me. And of late, in the last few years, I set up something called the Journal of Fair Trade, where we're really trying to explore this. So, for example, the, all the articles in volume two are about what I've called atypical fair trade. So we've got software, cannabis, publishing, all sorts of things that are not tea, coffee, cocoa, and the things that have become synonymous with Fair trade one word. And, and I think one of the things we did was some of the people who wrote for those issues and I, we put together a, a cover note kind of essay to, to introduce this idea where our basic premise is that anything can be fair yeah. if you want it to be, but there is no cookie cutter version of this. You know, there is no formula because somebody's challenge or disadvantage or vulnerability in one setting is not the same as the challenge, disadvantage and vulnerability in another setting. That doesn't lend itself very well to certification, to checklists, to standardized approaches and does rely on innovation, humanity and business now, right? To, to work. So I suppose my fair trade vision is that, and this is what I see in the last five, 10 years, is there are thousands of companies that have that kind of characteristic. And they would often not even see themselves as fair. Because what they're doing is they're trying to solve problems, people's problems, planet problems, yeah. efficiency, not in the kind of capitalist sense, but they're trying to solve problems through, with, trading as, a, as, as their medium. So that's my definition. And, you know, and I think the standardization and the 
criteriaization of everything is is a little obstructive yeah. in seeing the true value of fair trade. As fair trade as mainstreamed, you know, large multinational organizations have embraced it to an extent. It's always a little bit of a dilemma, isn't it? How you bring people on the journey, but how you make sure that you're not getting into greenwashing and sort of unauthentic kind of use of stuff. How do you see the journey for bringing other companies on board? I mean, for example, when Cadbury came on board with Fairtrade, it was like, you know, a, a wonderful moment. But then Cadbury have then moved on and done their own certification or whatever you want to call it. How do you think feel we should best embrace organizations that are not alternative to help them to to help us change everything certification made it easier right for large corporations large companies to do something slightly better yeah. in their supply chain so i i get that and and as such i am a supporter of fair trade certification yeah i think what has been missed from that experience though, is that one of the most fundamental benefits of fair trade certification was not really for those companies. I mean, of course, they they tried to look good and things. I think what's been overlooked is that the process of becoming a fair trade certified producer has introduced into organizations of smallholders and small scale producers disciplines and mutual support mechanisms and awareness of the market that they did not have before. And it incentivizes it with the mm -hmm. premium. Yeah. So it's such a mismatch to then say that that premium is about helping school children and feeding people and things. It's like, why did that get to happen, right? There's nothing wrong with having something public, verified, audited by third parties that tells us if a major corporation is doing something well, keeping to the rules. I, I'm, I'm all for that. And I have actually been a consultant for Verite, which is a fair labor supply chain oriented US organization for 20 years. And I've worked with a lot of big companies. What I think is so disappointing about all of this is that most corporations know that it doesn't boil down to paying tuppence halfpenny extra. We don't solve problems by a bit of a fair trade premium. So we're now in a situation where companies and their sustainability visions and sustainability commitments, particularly where these are being extracted from them by law, they lack all of the best dimensions of fair trade at its best which does have to do with autonomy, empowerment, negotiating power, self-awareness, organization, the end to atomization and picking people off, south-south networks of farmers who give each other mutual support and, 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 and courage. All of those things have kind of been lost, I think, which would have been exceedingly good with in or outside of a fair trade certifying system for large corporations. I suppose my view is it's always good if corporations try to be good. And it's always necessary to audit and verify what they do and what they say they do. 
cafe director is absolutely the living example of this. You know, the best way to get corporations, large ones, to do things well, to do things good, right, is to beat them at their own game. So when Cavi Direct went into the market, there were virtually no origin coffees. You had the classics. You had a bit of Kenya, you know, double A. You had a bit of single origin, bit of Colombian, but not really. Yeah, People really didn't think about where it came from. They didn't think about farmers, let alone tell a story. And I think the direct suffix in the name challenged companies to know more about their own supply chains. And large corporations involved in coffee like Nestle immediately, immediately started to publish how they were also doing the equivalent of direct trading, you know, meaning our agent buys direct from farmers. And, and we had a very, very good moment when we launched um, Capital Instant first time at the press conference at some fancy hotel in the West End. Now, somebody asked point blank about this, and Nestle had just published this report about their direct trading, I think. And in the end, the best way to leverage better behavior from large corporations is to be better than them and for people to know about it. Yeah. So that, that that's it. And and I do think it's been a, another wasted opportunity that the fair trade certifying bodies have not managed to co-support mainstream corporates and those radical innovators, you know, that had a kind of galvanizing proposition. They didn't see that this is actually a kind of pincer movement that if companies like Cavidirect and Divine are raising the bar, then corporations have to raise their game. What are you seeing in terms of consumers moving forward and questioning and challenging? I mean, the second question would be, what would you say to us to help us to change further and faster, probably? Well, I think my, my perspective on this comes from the last 18 months of our pandemic. Although the challenges of our local economies have been quite significant for some time, but they became painfully obvious during the pandemic and the lack of local investment and the domination of a few companies in our high streets and things like that. And, and I think what I see is uh, intuitive but very real realization that local shops will only stay open if I shop in them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What I've noticed in my fair trade, local fair trade groups is that they know who are the good businesses, the businesses that are baked into the community and have some values. Yeah? They really, really do. And what I've been saying to people is maybe you remember when we used to boycott South African goods in the name of anti-apartheid. But now I want you to realize there is a difference between having a cup of coffee in an independent, locally owned coffee shop versus the Costa or versus the Starbucks. Actually, it matters massively. I think that encapsulates a lot of the 
realization that people have come to during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, because high streets were becoming denuded, things closing down, lots of empty spaces. I think spelling out in a much broader framing than fair trade certification, what good for people, planet, good for economies is, is, is what is what is needed. It's quite complicated, isn't it? But I think we all can play a part. So I think that kind of holding to account in a very personal way is fascinating and, and really important, isn't it? I mean, it, it tells you a lot about the people you're choosing to deal with. You want those kind of people to be not saying, oh, you haven't got, you haven't got Cafe Direct, I'll have Costa or something, because there are such fundamental differences in what you're choosing to do. Yeah, I would like awareness of that distinction to be far greater. Yeah. But it makes a difference if you buy from a Cafe Direct, you know, versus a, a Nestle or Fairtrade. I think increasing numbers of people do understand that difference, which is fortunate. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is. I but I think you're right. We we can go back to some of the more campaigning fundamentals of the the earlier days, dust them off and be more provocative and, uh, you know, challenging. There's still have a heck of a lot to do and it feels like there's a lot less time to do it in. A lot of companies are obviously mimicking the vocabulary and the imagery of alternative brands. So it's pretty hard to differentiate. So I, th I think there's quite a lot to do to not only help people see the distinction between company structure and company purposes but also how that manifests in in products i was doing a an event with b core a couple of years ago and i had with me somebody from danone which is a b core and somebody from i think it's ella's kitchen and i was like the you know the, the social enterprise kind of pioneering kind of thing and there was a conversation about ownership to danone and to others uh, ownership isn't a, isn't a big issue and you know to me i i swore a bit and explained that i think it's a fundamental issue you know if you're if you're owned by shareholders who want to make profit for themselves and have no other you know purpose higher than that and yet you communicate with me that you care about farmers and you care about the the planet you know there's a real disconnect it's not true. The problem with my rant there is it doesn't change it. I think ownership is really important, isn't it? And the, the governance of an organisation. If every time you bought a can of beans or a packed bag of coffee, you, you could know the ownership structure and the purpose, God, that'd be helpful. Well, you're preaching to somebody who has always had that preoccupation. <laughs> <laughs> Even so, it's quite hard to get that working. But I do think... We have a long way to go on to make <laughs> capitalism just generally accountable to things. So. If I can take you back to the beginning of Cafe Direct, I'm really keen to hear what happened and, and what it felt like. The way it started is probably is best brought to life by somebody like yourself. So what happened to create Cafe Direct and how did it feel? I worked at that time in Twin Trading, which was a child of the Greater London Council under Ken Livingstone. Between the biggest and most central prompt for Cafe Direct was that between 1989 and 1992, 
there was a breakdown in what was the international coffee trading regime because the international coffee agreement, which set the who trades with whom and, and who's an official source of coffee and who isn't, was ending and they could not reach an agreement because there was a pent-up demand for Arabicas, actually, which couldn't be accommodated by what was essentially a quota system. Yeah. And so during that period, there was in terrible turbulence from the perspective of farmers. There was no predictability of prices. Prices were plummeting. And they reached sort of 1930s price levels at the end of the 1980s and, and 1990, 1991, while all of this was going on. And twin trading at that time was providing a whole range of services to coffee cooperatives that had been brought together in a network by Bert Beckman and the, the then Max Havilar Foundation. So we were kind of the sort of the technical service providing arm of that movement. We did finance, we did puts, options, we helped farmers manage their price risk. We did all sorts of crazy and fantastic stuff. And I was invited to a Latin American coffee farmers meeting, which was held in you know, this incredible place in the center of Mexico City, hosted by the mayor of Mexico City, who was a leftist, wow. along with David Griswold, who was oh, yes. setting up Sustainable Harvest, Michael Rosine, who came from Equal Exchange USA. You know, we were the only non-farmers at that meeting. And farmers from, you know, the whole of Latin America came and were discussing what do we do? And out of that came an incredible programming and solidarity among farmers in Latin America, which we've seen the consequences of in things like the CLAC and, and a lot of regional collaboration. And at one at some point in all of those proceedings, they kind of turned and said, so what are you going to do? <laughs> so, so I remember saying, I'll do something, but I don't know yet. <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll get back to you. And on my way home, I thought, actually, I'm not a campaigner. It's not enough for me to moan, you know, and to bewail things. And the light bulb for me in coming up with the, as we called it, the NCB, the new coffee brand, was that all through that period of turbulence, because we were trading green coffee spot in the European market at that point, all that time I was watching the, the green coffee price plummet. And in my local Safeway supermarket, I was waiting to see when this would show up on the shelves for consumers, right? And of course it didn't. And that led me to go and research it. And there's quite a lot of interesting work on, on how that works. And I thought, well, I don't want to be in the C price. I want to be on the mark supermarket shelf, right? Because yeah. <laughs> that, doesn't, doesn't, that doesn't, you know, oscillate so crazily. <laughs> and we have a bit more control and we can have some messaging and, you know, we can do the campaigning, but we're also doing it through a, a, a physical thing. And so we did actually bring together the four main ATOs, alternative trading organizations at that time. You know, potentially it was such a great collaboration. It was never easy, but we were most diverse. So we had Equal Exchange, which came from the workers' cooperative movement and was very well integrated into the whole food markets, of which there were many and there are still several 
uh, worker cooperative wholesalers. We had Tradecraft with their indomitable grassroots Tupperware party people, you know, passionate, good folk. We had Oxfam Trading that was selling kind of random basketry and bits and bobs in next to secondhand clothing. And we had Twin Trading that was supplying anti-apartheid movement with anti-apartheid frontline coffee and Nicaragua Solidarity campaign with front, front with you know Nicaragua Solidarity coffee and also trading green beans on the on the market from farmers. So we were a really cool cool consortium in that sense and I was unbelievably egalitarian about the whole thing so the thing was set up with four equal partners 25% each and the buying in price was seven thousand pounds <laughs> so that was it <laughs> and we set the seven thousand because it was the most the equal exchange that was the poorest and smallest could afford right so, so uh-huh. it was a very it, <laughs> Kind of an embodiment of all sorts of things. Um, Some of it was very erroneous, as it turned out later. And it was a bit of a roller coaster. So we had two things to manage. One was the planning of the brand and the planning of being alternative in the mainstream. This is long before we thought about fair trade, one word, mainstreaming fair trade. So there we were kind of pluckily doing this. At the other end of it, we had to manage and to create a a genuine partnership. Because alternative traders were not immune to kind of false rivalry, I would have said. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really take that long to see that by pooling some of their own equity in terms of their footprint and their reputation and their own ability to reach quite distinct market segments themselves, Um, that we would become greater than the sum of our parts, and we did. It's, it's well before my time, and I, in the in a modern day cafe direct where, you know, sixty percent of the shares are owned by four and a half thousand individuals, and you know, four and a half percent is owned by the farmers. Uh, Oxfam's still there with eight point eight percent, and Oikredit Credit has, you know, twenty seven point eight percent. I often wonder what it would have been like to be in a boardroom with four founding organisations with such. Um, kind of belief and strength and it must have been a fascinating time to get the synergy of the four organizations but also feel some of the differences too it must have been quite remarkable yes and i think if you were to bring in some of the people who you know were around that table at that time philip angier andy good ed millard they would talk about the thrills and spills of it all (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, the, the diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> there was some really juicy moments. So <laughs> having, having persuaded everybody that I didn't really want to rely on their in-house designers for our brand and mm-hmm. was going to bring in an agency, and we got there and we picked Cafe Direct, mm-hmm. I then discovered that it was already taken. <laughs> oh, isn't that always the way? <laughs> and so I, it was taken by a office supplies company you know uh, okay like a, yeah 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 and it was called like office direct or something right mm-hmm. and in it they had coffee that's what research showed up and i remember ringing them and, and thinking so how do i pitch this that they should <laughs> give us this? but they totally got it they really loved it but to buy a trademark you actually have to to buy it so I was, they were they said i'm going to have to consult my board how much we sell this for they sold it to us for four coffee beans. 
how wonderful and what a relief that they didn't go, you know, we think it's worth this much and we're going to be tough about it all. But no, that's wonderful. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Robin Murray. I mean, I went to an event to celebrate the life of Robin Murray that Twin arranged. Uh, unfortunately, I never met him, but I, I did go to an event in somewhere in North London where about 30 people all, you know, recognised his fabulous achievements and celebrated his life. And I think his his wife was there. And um, what struck me, which was amazing, was they did something that they said that Robin would always encourage, which was everybody stood around the room and was encouraged just to say a little bit about what things meant and to recall something from his life. And it, it struck me as this was clearly a very pioneering and you know, incredibly substantial, game-changing kind of person. But I, I, I've never met Robin, and I just wondered what, what your recollections on his impact on the world were. So Robin Murray was a person who had a kind of forensic way of seeing how things really work. I mean, he was an economist by training, loved numbers, needed numbers to to make sense of things but he also judged things not just by numbers but by what he used to call the aesthetic of the thing is this does this feel right does this look right and we're back to the discussion we've had about most people of good heart feel instinctively whether something is going to be good or is good or is worth defending. Robin was that kind of person. And he was a supremely supportive person if you were trying to innovate. And he's the person who designed and spun off Twin, the charity, and Twin Trading, the trading company, to connect London with the world, to do trade for mutual benefit, a precursor to fair trade, if you like. And his whole his whole life, he was engaged at every level, whether it's in Hackney, where he lived, or at a university in Canada, where he worked. Everything about him was a sort of tableau of revolutionary possibility. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I always thought of him as the sort of the person you need to, to theorize about whether something's really relevant feasible, good. <laughs> he was my board chair for so long. And as the director, it was like actually being on a permanent PhD program. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so forget cash flows, we had those. But you know, you had to also kind of rationalize and reason and theorize about things that we were planning to do. He was enthralled by Cafe Direct because he saw this as a completely different kind of model that could, if successful, you know, disrupt, as we would now say it, disrupt the conventions, the way of doing things through agents, through this, through that, through complex supply chains, you know, where everybody takes their cut and the farmer gets the lease. So he saw its disruptive potential the simplicity and power of its message. And he was unbelievably supportive of that launch. And later, a few years later, the, the launch of Divine, which was even more complicated than Cafe Direct. <laughs> a huge thanks to Pauline there, really inspirational. 
You can also catch Pauline talking at our event on the 7th of October, as she'll be part of our Building Better Business panel discussion, which highlights how important businesses are in the future of the world and humanity. Register now to access the live stream at cafedirect.co.uk forward slash live. Thanks for listening. Join us next time.